Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, and we're going to have a different podcast today as we record this podcast on Tuesday, October 12, the huge news of John Gruden and the Raiders divorcing on Monday night, ironically in the middle of a Monday night football game, uh, is still fresh, and we're going to explore that in large detail on this podcast. It's going to be an, an unusual podcast um, and later on in the podcast, I'm going to have on Andrew Beaton of the Wall Street Journal, who started the ball rolling on Friday with his reporting uh, on this story. Um, I'll also discuss uh, the events of Monday night about Gruden uh, with Paul Burmeister of NBC Sports. And we will get into a little bit of football, but this podcast is going to be driven by the news about John Gruden. And I want to start by saying that the podcast this week is going to have some words I've never used in a podcast. Uh, there's going to be offensive language, which I'm using because a famous NFL coach, John Gruden, used this language, and this language is what ended up getting him either fired or getting him to resign uh, from the Las Vegas Raiders on Monday night. I just think they're necessary to explain why exactly John Gruden is out of work today. So the Raiders and Gruden, as I said, got divorced Monday night. Ironically, as I said, in the middle of a Monday night football game. Uh, and this whole story started with the Wall Street Journal's reporting on Friday that from a, a collection of 650,000 emails, that the NFL had collected in conjunction with its investigation of the Washington football team. Several emails, offensive ones, were found uh, with Gruden in them and uh, sent by uh, the Las Vegas Raiders coach. Now, understand this. At the time that he sent these emails, most of the time, if not all of the time, John Gruden was not an employee of the NFL. He was an employee of ESPN. He was doing the Monday night football games on television. And so these emails came before he was hired in early 2018. So there was a lot of discussion about whether these emails should constitute a reason for any sort of discipline because he wasn't a league employee at the time. But the NFL sent all of these emails um, in, in conjunction with this story to Raiders owner Mark Davis on Friday. And the journal started this uh, when there was an email sent from Gruden to uh, Bruce Allen, who at the time was the president of the Washington franchise, calling NFLPA executive director D. Smith, uh, who is black, saying that he had lips the size of Michelin tires. Uh, ESPN reported more offensive emails with Gruden in them and sent by Gruden were sent to uh, the Raiders owner, Mark Davis. They reported this on Friday or that they were sent on Friday and yet Davis did nothing over the weekend. And uh, 36 hours after, at least 36 hours after receiving the emails, 
John Gruden coached his final game, a loss to the Chicago Bears. And on Monday, um, the, the rest of the emails, or at least uh, a good deal of them, were revealed by the New York Times. The Times said that uh, he had called Roger Goodell, and I quote, a faggot, end quote, and also called him a, quote, clueless anti-football pussy, end quote. And there was a lot more that the Times reported. He said that uh, Gruden was very critical of the league's efforts to get openly gay. College player Michael Sam drafted was very critical of the players protesting, taking knees on the sidelines in the wake of the Colin Kaepernick activism. And so there was a collection of these emails that Mark Davis then on Monday went to his office, looked for John Gruden, and Monday late afternoon they decided... West Coast time, they decided that Gruden would no longer continue as the coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. So that is the basis of what all has happened. And that is what we are looking at today. And the Raiders, obviously, one of the surprise teams in the first month of of the season, at least until a a, a terrible performance on Sunday in in a home loss to Chicago. They had been one of the surprise teams of the early uh, weeks of the league, and now their season is in shambles. They will be coached on an interim basis by Rich Bisaccia. But this is not a story about the Oakland Raiders team on the field. Uh, Oakland Raiders, Las Vegas Raiders team on the field. It's a story about uh, their former head coach off the field. And that is a summary of it. I'm going to bring in Paul Burmeister now. We'll have a discussion about what it all means. Uh, and Paul, I, I guess I'll start just by saying, you know, when you heard the news Monday night, what were your initial thoughts? Initial thoughts were there, there was no other way. Uh, this was the only outcome that could have happened, whether it was a resignation or a firing, however it actually went down. It went from a situation over the weekend, Peter, that was uh, disturbing and offensive and certainly worth keeping an eye on to in a matter of moments Monday, as we all got into the details and the words and the, the consistency with the behavior and the feeling that there was no other outcome. It was sudden, yeah, but it was, I think, more inevitable than it was sudden. You know, and I think the other part of this, Paul, is that, you know, Booger McFarland, I thought it made a great point on the Monday Night Football telecast, and that is that the NFL has all of these slogans that they put on helmets and put in end zones and racism, um, you know, among them and has been very, very pro um, inclusion uh, with the LGBTQ uh, community, um, welcomed Carl Nassib with open arms when his announcement was made in the off season. Um, and, and, And that's one of the reasons why you know, for those who are saying, oh, these are emails sent years ago. And really, there aren't many saying that today. These are emails sent years ago. The league has been on a path right now. And this path has, in essence, been to, uh, you know, to make the game more inclusive and to make it not be a, a stigma if you're a football fan and you're gay. And, you know, look, Paul, I have a gay daughter She's a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, for for all of the discussion out there about, you know, what all of this means, I I really thought of my daughter Monday night um, and, and on Friday when I was hearing and reading about all of these things and just saying that, can you imagine if either the league did nothing or Mark Davis did nothing about this and you know he paid a fine or or did whatever i mean you know i think the people in the united states whatever the eight or nine percent whatever the number is in the united states of you know of people who are homosexual um many of whom absolutely love the nfl i just i just kept thinking there will be a mass exodus of those fans, and I can tell you, including my daughter, um, who would who'd walk away from the NFL. So there's so many little tributaries, but 
Paul, I want to ask you specifically one question just about players. And, 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 and I ask you this because you were a player in the Big Ten. You played quarterback at Iowa. You were in the Minnesota Vikings training camp. You understand what the locker room is like. And I wonder today, in today's day and age, how difficult do you think it would have been for John Gruden to walk back into his own locker room this week? I don't think it would have been accepted uh, because my, my feeling is, as you mentioned, as the way locker rooms are now and with the way people are thinking and feeling now, which is uh, 100% the right way, is that uh, it wouldn't have been okay. I, I think every single player in that locker room is somewhere between, at the very least, they understand the outcome. And I would like to think that the, the vast majority are past that and they fully support the outcome. So it, it was the only way um, for the league, for the organization, and for the locker room. I don't think there would have been any players supporting him coming back, but the overwhelming majority would not have been okay with it. And it just, it's, it's hard to picture the option, Peter, isn't it? After those words, after we all read those words, it's hard to imagine him coming back and addressing the team uh, because if it wasn't the overwhelming majority, it would have been all the players who wouldn't have been okay with that. You know, Paul, um, I'm going to have further discussion, as I said, uh, in a few minutes on the podcast with Andrew Beaton of the Wall Street Journal. But I'll, I'll just, I'll finish this part, you know, the, the sort of non-football, but a big effect on football part of the part of our discussion today with making this point that uh, on Tuesday morning, somebody asked me on Twitter, um, you think that there's any chance that Gruden would get a college job? And I responded, and look, I used to be very, very active on Twitter. I am much less so these days because Twitter basically is a can't-win place. Um, and, 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 this, and this person who, who asked, do you, you think you'll get a college job? I wrote and I said, would you send your child to play for him? And I don't know, before we recorded, I just looked at a lot of the mentions and I'd say 20 or 30% of the people said some version of yes, absolutely, I would. Um, so that's really the country we live in. We live in a divided country. We live in a country where a lot of people are going to say John Gruden didn't do anything wrong or he did very little wrong. But in this environment today, it's not, this is not a cancel culture move by the Las Vegas Raiders and by owner Mark Davis. This is a move of inevitability. There was no other decision that could have been made. And anyone who says otherwise, I think, is fooling himself because in essence, you have to be able to coach a diverse group of people. The NFL is majority black today. And it's pretty hard to walk into a locker room and to coach a team of players who are majority black when you are on the record as making the kind of racist statements and the uh, anti-gay statements, it, all the statements he made. It just would have been very hard to come back in. And, and Paul, I guess I'll, I'll just end with this that John Gruden is going to go down in history as uh, basically as, as really a controversial person, obviously. But I wonder if history, when judging him as a coach, will judge him as a better coach than he really was. Because in his career, John Gruden was 60 and 57, as a coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, won a Super Bowl there, obviously, but was three games over 500 in the regular season with the Bucs. And then was 62 and 59 with the Raiders, three games over 500 with the Raiders in his last three full seasons, never brought the Raiders to the playoffs after being signed to a $100 million contract. So, 
And again, this is the ninth story on a day like this. But the fact is, I think we ought to realize that this is a huge, huge story. But Gruden was a little bit of a creation of the media, of an invention of the media. And I get to work at 3.17 a.m. I'm, you know, and all this. And I just, I now look at sort of the myths sometimes that we make and say, John Gruden was an okay football coach, but he was not a $100 million football coach. And a lot of people got sort of enthralled by the aura of Gruden, the charisma of Gruden, the the TV personality that was Gruden. I don't know. And I, I throw this out to you as, as somebody who loves football, who watches football. What did you think of Gruden strictly as a football coach? As I sit here and listen to you talk about him and, and describe him prior to all this came out, I mean, the, the John Gruden we knew that we thought we knew you know, prior to the last 72 hours. My mind goes back, Peter, to when I was in local news uh, at, at an NBC affiliate in Eastern Iowa. I was the weekend sports anchor. And on Sunday evenings, we would always show the Bears highlights, the Packers highlights, the Vikings highlights because of where we were located in, in the country. We made an exception to show Raiders highlights from 2001 to two and three, not because they were really good and they were really good, but because of seeing John Gruden on the sidelines, people enjoyed it. The, the Chucky faces, the energy, the charisma, it became part of what we were doing in covering the NFL in three minutes, in addition to the local teams, because of John Gruden. And whether you want to call it likability or energy or charisma, it was all there. And the nation was kind of captivated by it. And then he won the Super Bowl, as you mentioned, and then not nearly as much success uh, recently. Um, but that all started a while ago not because they were winning, but because of who he was on the sideline. And I think we all remember that maybe even a little too much. And you mentioned the record of 62 and 59, even if that was 82 and 39, if my math is correct there, I think it would be tremendously overshadowed, not only right now, uh, but in the long run, as people look back and evaluate them. I, you know, <laughs> I think of, you know, because obviously John Gruden took over a very good team in Tampa and he, and he took it to, uh, to win a Super Bowl. So I think of that and I think of George Seifert who took over a great team and won with the 49ers for a while. And I just think to myself, poor George Seifert living his post-football life or maybe fortunate George Seifert living his football life in absolute anonymity uh, and, and, uh, you know, has a better career record than John Gruden, but that's, uh, that's America today. Anyway, let's get into just a few topics in our remaining time, Paul. Um, I, I, look, it was a crazy night, Monday night. I'm a big Red Sox follower. And so I was flipping back and forth between the Red Sox game on Monday night a, a tremendous baseball game against the Tampa Bay Rays and and the Monday night game because I could not believe that uh, the Ravens at one point are down 22 to three in this game. And and then they come back and and out of the ashes, it, Lamar Jackson was was not good in the first half of this game. And then he comes back and has one of the great games that a quarterback's had in a long long time. And I wonder, I don't really know what to think of these Baltimore Ravens right now. You know, here they are. They're one of the four and one teams. I think now there's, uh, there's seven, four and one teams in football. They're one of the four and one teams, but man, they are really hard to figure out right now. Give me your observation on, on Lamar Jackson from Monday night and where you think this leaves the Ravens. I think, first of all, with Lamar Jackson, if, if someone would have told you prior to that game last night, I know you were back and forth between the great baseball and the great football, that in that game that there would be a missed field goal late that had a lot to do with the outcome, you wouldn't have been surprised, you know, based off of what we saw on Sunday afternoon and evening. But if someone would have said, hey, there'll be a quarterback in this game who outdoes what Josh Allen did on Sunday night, who, who outdoes what uh, Justin Herbert did on Sunday afternoon, that part would have been really hard to believe. 
But Lamar Jackson erasing that, I think it was a 19-point deficit, 90% in the second half. I mean, that, that's unheard of in practice to go 90% right. over that stretch of drives and times. And what, what really stood out to me, Peter, and what I think, I mean, to me will be most remembered, Lamar Jackson has been an MVP recently. Like, heroics from Lamar Jackson late in the game are not surprising. I mean, look at the Monday night game in Cleveland last year. A lot of those plays, though, were made outside the structure and just Lamar, as people say, being Lamar. He was terrific last night from the pocket consistently. I mean, how many times as they were chipping away at that lead was it drop back, patience, right read, good accuracy, wash, rinse, repeat, do it again and again and again. Uh, so like, to me, that was that's what I'm going to remember the most, not just the comeback, but it was Lamar doing it from the pocket. And that's been the that's been the one criticism of him and the Ravens passing game. But can they consistently do that? And they did consistently do it last night in some huge moments. So we were going to, as we discussed this podcast on, uh, on Monday during the day, we were going to discuss Gruden, but we are also going to discuss the teams that we love exiting week five. And, and I had, and I have, Baltimore at the top of that list. I think in some order, I would probably, probably take uh, Baltimore, I'm sorry, excuse me, Buffalo, Arizona, Tampa, and and the Rams and Chargers are very, very close. And look, you can just name every four in one team because every one of them I could see making noise in the playoffs. Green Bay, I could see. Uh, Baltimore, I could see. But... I really look at this right now and say Baltimore, Buffalo has really um, energized itself in the last month. And since facing the great uh, defensive front pressure of Pittsburgh in the opener, has had a solution for every team. If I asked you right now, give me your top, let's say, three, what would they be and in what order? I would say Buffalo right away at number one. And I know they struggled the first week, as you mentioned. And I, I know that they beat up on some inferior competition, you know, in the last few weeks. Uh, but I know what I saw leading up to Sunday night. I know what I saw Sunday night. Uh, the MVP uh, leader, I think, at quarterback and Josh Allen. It looks like when he steps on the field, Peter, it, it's almost like the field gets tilted a little bit downhill. And they, they let him play with a junior-sized ball, making it look so easy and doing things that a lot of these quarterbacks cannot do. So that's, that's the eye test. And then you look at the numbers. They've scored the most points in the league. They've given up the fewest points in the league. And their turnover margin is the best. So uh, I think it's tough to argue against Buffalo. I would put Tampa Bay at number two. They are the defending champs. And even though they're somewhat one-dimensional in offense, no one has really slowed down Tom Brady yet. The Pats did a little bit, but he was good enough to win. At number three, I'd put Dallas. And there are a number of teams that you could put in that third slot, Peter, and make a good argument for. To me, the Cowboys, with Dak being a couple levels better than he was before he got hurt, the defense, you can say the same about them. And the fact that they lead the NFL in rushing yards and how much they lean on that part of the game, I think the Cowboys, amongst five or six teams, you could say are third best. I would take Dallas after Buffalo and after Tampa Bay. You know, it's interesting talking about Arizona right now. One of the reasons why I think we're sort of looking at Arizona with a bit of a jaundiced eye is a fairly unimpressive offensive performance um, against uh, San Francisco on Sunday. But I would I would counter that by saying I think Arizona's proven they can win in a lot of different ways. They can outscore you and they can win the nail biters. And and look, I I, I agree with the general perception that there are other teams right now that look better uh, than Arizona. But the one thing I guess I would say about that is that even though home field, I mean, it's it's funny so far this year, and last year's the same way, that visiting teams have a winning record in the NFL this year, and it was very close last year. I'm not sure home field matters as much as it used to, but I mean... If you look at Arizona, and Arizona has a tough game this week at Cleveland, Arizona survives two or three of these really tough games, there's a very good chance they're going to win home field because the other teams also have some landmine games. 
Tampa does. Tampa has landmine games. And and so I, I think this is going to be really interesting to watch the rest of the way. And of course, we can look at this any week and change it. Um, but I, I think the one thing when I look at the NFC right now is I will not be surprised if five of these teams end up coming, any one of five of these teams end up coming out of um uh, of the of the NFC this year because to me I think there's a lot of evenness particularly in the NFC West. I want to close by asking you a theoretical question and it's something that really interests me and I wrote about in my column Football Morning in America when I said basically that Matt LaFleur in his first 37 games as an NFL coach regular season games, is 30 and 7. Paul Brown, in his first 37 regular season games in the NFL, was 30 and 7. I am not equating them, but I am making this point that sometimes coaches have to make decisions that in retrospect, you look at and you say, that was a really gutsy decision. And if it didn't turn out right, he would be getting vilified today. And I, so I don't think we should forget it. And Paul, that is, when you have Aaron Rodgers on your team, it's fourth and inches from the 31-yard line in Cincinnati at the two-minute warning of overtime. So this is it, okay? And the factor to think of is that in the previous nine minutes of game time, previous nine minutes, your field goal kicker has missed three field goals. And so if you are Matt LaFleur and you have to decide, am I giving Mason Crosby another chance to kill us here? Or am I going to show faith in him? Thought it was really interesting. He walked up on the sidelines to Mason Crosby and said, Hey, how you feeling? And he said, let me kick it. I want to kick it. LaFleur looked him in the eye. He saw, he said, okay, that's all I need to know. Go kick the field goal. And he kicked the field goal. They won the game. And I think that there are many things that I could say about that decision. But the one thing I would say is everything in football is not analytics at a number system, there's an awful lot in fu- in football that is human. And Matt LaFleur made the kind of human call that coaches are paid to make. And Green Bay walked out of Paul Brown Stadium. How ironic is that? With <laughs> I, a victory because of a gutsy decision that Matt LaFleur made. I don't know. I just... I don't know how you felt about it. We haven't discussed it. I said I wanted to talk about it. I'm just curious, your yeah. thought on the decision and the result. That was one of the most fun games to watch, Peter, because I sat and watched it with my wife and sons. And I mean, no, no matter what level of football fan you are, if you're watching that and you've seen the last 10 minutes of real time, you can't wait to see if they're going to run this guy out there with another chance to fail or maybe with a chance to succeed in the biggest moment yet. I thought it had wonderful intrigue for all the fans. I love the call, and I loved it for this reason, Peter. I think that Mason Crosby has so much goodwill equity in the bank in the last decade of coming through in moments like that, that he deserved that belief. And I think that Aaron Rodgers would have made the same call. And then if you're Matt LaFleur, and you you, kind of zoom out from that moment in that situation and think about your team and how maybe you're going to be significant in December and January, Mason Crosby's ability to knock one down from 50 yards is a giant part of that team's potential success on the biggest stage. They're not going to blow out that many teams. They, they could be great because of Aaron Rodgers, and they need that punctuation at the end of games from Mason Crosby. So I think it's great for them that he made it, but I think for the way that team needs to believe it can win down the road, that that's the call he had to make because uh, he, he's going to be the guy doing that again in December, and they certainly hope in January. Paul Burmeister, thanks on a mixed week. Um, to uh, Thanks to you for, for breaking down 
some football things and for um, hopefully a discussion that advanced the John Gruden story a bit. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. We'll talk next week. Um, now I'm going to get into my discussion with Andrew Beaton of the Wall Street Journal. As I said earlier, he is the one who started the reporting on this on Friday um, in the Wall Street Journal. So now my conversation with Andrew Beaton. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all handpicked from family farms, then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard, so is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So we're now joined by the aforementioned uh, Andrew Beaton. Um, Andrew, you uh, continued reporting on this story as we speak Tuesday night uh, here in New York. You continue to report on this story on Tuesday evening, sort of talking about what I think everyone wonders about, which is how in the world were these emails discovered from John Gruden to Bruce Allen? and what made the NFL flag them and move forward on this story? Yeah, it's this really strange thing that I think we've all been thinking about as these emails have come out ever since we reported on it last Friday. And one of the things that ultimately we discovered is that towards the end, almost the end of the investigation into the Washington football team, uh, the NFL learned of emails uh, to and from Bruce Allen that were concerning. But ultimately, those emails were not deemed to be relevant and pertinent to the actual Washington football team investigation, which we saw concluded in July, saw a record $10 million fine against the team. And then the NFL was left with this knowledge, knowing that these emails exist and that there are some problems inside them. And so began this offshoot investigation, so to speak, conducted by the league itself. They got those emails, a collection of more than 650,000, and they went through them. So they have had this email in their possession essentially for months at this point. And that was the strange genesis of a story of how the coach of the Las Vegas Raiders got essentially torpedoed by an investigation into a franchise where he never worked. What's weird about this is that it's almost like Gruden became collateral damage in a story that had nothing to do with him. Fair or unfair, this, this really kind of seems slightly unfair to some degree. It reminds me of watching a courtroom drama, drama and the defense attorney would say, well, wait a second, that's outside the purview of this case, what exactly happened here? Why, why, explain why these emails basically can be used against John Gruden uh, in this particular case? Well, against here is kind of a strange thing because the NFL or the Raiders ultimately did not issue any punishment. He ultimately resigned amid the pressure of the offensive derogatory things that was said in those emails. And I think to, to your question is that is why this secondary investigation was launched because that these emails were deemed not pertinent to that first investigation. That's why they weren't part of what 
Uh, Beth Wilkinson, the attorney who led the thorough investigation is the Washington football team. They're not part of what she delivered in the, the oral reports to Roger Goodell. However, once the NFL learned that there were these troubling matters, that's why they said, okay, well, we, we know about this. We need to look into it. According to your story uh, that you dropped tonight, Tuesday night, um, Goodell did not know about this until last week. How long had the investigators known about these Gruden emails? Well, we know that it, Goodell was given his briefing on this last week, but the leak has known about at least the existence of emails like this since toward the end of the investigation around June-ish. Then after the Washington football team investigation ends, that sort of leads into the beginning of the next one. So we're talking about, you know, probably July-ish when that gets going. So we're talking about a, manner, a, a course of months in which uh, people inside the league knew. And it raises some obviously interesting questions about, you know, these emails, it doesn't take much to read them and see in what ways they are offensive, what took so long, why didn't, weren't these flagged to the Raiders immediately. Um, but what, what people had told me was, you know, they had plans to do that. Um, Goodell had just been briefed on the summaries of that investigation. And it is this weird thing where there's a lot of moving parts here that fit together in strange, bizarre ways that end in this conclusion that I don't think anybody could have foreseen when the Washington football team investigation began, because in a lot of ways, it has nothing to do with it. So at this point, um, do you believe that the Washington football emails, which Mark Maskey of the Washington Post also reported today that would almost certainly not be released. Um, and a lot of people, including me, would like to see them released if Gruden's were released. I, I, I think that's my one other question. Why would Gruden's emails be selectively released when none of the Washington football team emails get released that Daniel Snyder obviously would be a part of and could be damning against Daniel Snyder? Well, I think the really interesting question that's inside there stems back to the initial Washington football team investigation itself. Because when that wrapped up, a few, we were told a couple things. And the key one to me, and I think to a lot of people, has been that the NFL didn't receive a written report. They received a, a series of oral reports, oral findings. And I think when, while the NFL made clear that the Washington football team was essentially a broken workplace with rampant misconduct in many, many forms, senior executives were either involved or incompetently turning a blind eye to it. There was no, there were no documents there. And whenever anyone seemed to ask, it was, well, there's no there there. And so what seems a bit peculiar or concerning for people interested in transparency is why wasn't there a more full written accounting that the league had in that moment? Because when you're asking about, say, those documents from there, the response is that those don't exist because the league wanted an oral report. And so these emails, oh, there were documents from this because this was the secondary different investigation that offshoot, that was an offshoot from that. But it was, they chose to take a different tact with the investigation of this franchise where conduct, misconduct was rampant. Let's just assume for a second that there are some damaging things in the other 649,500 emails about Daniel Snyder and about the team he has owned and, by the way, has run into the ground. Um, let's assume there's some damaging emails in there. I can't help but thinking that the head coach, who is not an owner, had his career ruined by the disclosure of these emails. 
the owner basically, other than paying a $10 million fine, skated. And in a few months when he is back with full responsibility with the team, he'll just go on like nothing has happened. And just from the stance of fairness, this stinks. It just stinks to me. I just, I, I don't know. And I know you're reporting the story and not being a columnist, having a strong opinion about it. Um, but there's something about it that just seems very wrong to me. I, I, I don't think you're off in that something feels off. And we are left with a lot of questions. And one of the things that's also clear is that these 650,000 emails were Bruce Allen emails, you know, that these are um, things that had been flagged to investigators to look into separately from that. And so we, there are documents here. And I think the question is, should documents ever be produced? You know, the full 650,000 from this are one question, but the other question is, what about some written hard facts from the original Washington football team investigation? There are attorneys who have uh, represented former employees there who have called that from, for that since the beginning. There are, and those, and numerous people have called for the release of all 650,000 of these. There, that includes both lawyers representing those former employees and even the NFLPA, DeMaurice Smith was the first person who was broadsided with John Gruden's language when he used a racial trope to describe D. Smith. And so there's a lot of people that want that. The question is, What's in there? One of the interesting things that I was told today is no other current or former league employees' emails from that stash have been flagged. So, what does that mean exactly? What it means is that as of right now, it's not as if they don't believe that there's another Gruden inside that stash, who, another person whose conduct from those emails warrants the scrutiny of potential discipline anything to that effect. Do we know everything about Gruden's emails right now or could there be more? Um, I, you know, I think there's a pretty clear picture already. And if there's any other there, there, it is, I'd imagine it would be along the same lines. But I think one of the things that was made clear both with our original story, with the great reporting the Times did afterwards is that this wasn't a slip up. And I think that's when it became a concern. It, was, it wasn't just a one-off email a decade ago. It was cavalier use of offensive language that offends a lot, a lot of people when you're talking about women, when you're talking about the gay community, when, and this is a guy who had the first actively openly gay player on his team with the Raiders now. So I think what became, when it became clear that this was a casual day-to-day -day interaction where that type of language would be used, that painted a pretty clear picture to I think a lot of people. Andrew, Adam Schefter said on the Monday night game uh, uh, last night, <clears throat> as we record this on Tuesday night, he said that the NFL sent these emails and the contents of these emails to Raiders owner Mark Davis on Friday. And Davis, in essence, did nothing about them over the weekend. Um, and it sounded like, although Adam did not say this, that the league was hoping that Mark Davis might do something about this. And he didn't do it. Do you believe that the league wanted Mark Davis to discipline John Gruden and or sort of, quote, handle it himself within the team, end quote? Yeah, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think the other thing is once this became public with our initial story on Friday, if you think about it, it almost the league had control over what was happening in terms of it was conducting this investigation. One of the things I was told was they were planning to set up a meeting with the Raiders 
where they wanted to in-person go through these things together. But once it became public, all of a sudden this really fast clock was ticking on both sides where the, this comes out late Friday. And then all of a sudden on Sunday, they have a football game. And these are some, in some ways, complicated questions about what do you do about someone, things someone said before he was employed by you. This is someone who, who wasn't even an employee of the league at the time. But I think what becomes clear is if you had all those emails, you, a really strong look at them could have said, you know what, maybe we don't know exactly what to do right now, but there are options like paid leave while we sort this out. Because if you had those emails in your pocket, you had to figure there was another shoe to drop. Do you believe that if your story had not appeared on Friday and the NFL would have let this, obviously the game would have gone on on Sunday. You think the NFL in the absence of the sunlight shining on your story and on the Times story might have met with the Raiders privately this week to say, this is going to get out. We've got to do something about this. Yeah, I think that's the type of timeline that had been described to me where they had been hoping to meet with the Raiders in person and debrief on all this, but they hadn't done it yet. And I think one of the, if people want to raise an eyebrow at how this played out, it is this sort of timeline that we're now getting a better grip of, which is that these emails have been in some way or form in the NFL's um, hands for months now. And while Goodell was only briefed on that investigation's findings last week, you know, this could, there's a lot of worlds where this could have been done faster. Those debriefings could have happened not just this week or even last week before a story, but weeks ago. Do you think there's anything left to this story, Andrew? I think there has to be, right? Because I think one of the things that we began this conversation about is the sheer bizarreness about it. You called it unfair about, you know, these aftershocks of an investigation that completely didn't touch John Gruden, eventually essentially taking him down. I'm not sure if unfair is the word I would use. I'd say bizarre and uncomfortable because we also know that the behavior under that, inside that organization in many respects that same transparency of certain documents becoming public has not happened in many cases there. But I think the sheer strangeness of this story combined with the explosiveness of it, I think there has to be meat on the bone for a lot of people to continue asking questions about. I definitely would call it unfair because uh, in my opinion, it is as unfair that Daniel Snyder, if he chooses to, will own this team for the rest of his life uh, without having a lot of consequences. And, and again, I'm sorry, I understand that $10 million is not money you find in your couch cushion. I get it. But $10 million is a lot different for Andrew Beaton than it is, or for, it, it, for all of us than it is for Daniel Snyder. And I just, uh, I'm not really saying that, oh, poor John Gruden in any way. He made his own bed. But to compare the two things and the misogyny that happened inside the Washington football team and these 40 women who came forward as plaintiffs in this case, basically, wanting transparency and all they got was a closed case and everybody said nothing to see here. I just, you know, sometimes people wonder and I, you know, obviously I've covered this league for a long time. Sometimes people wonder why do people view the NFL so suspiciously and with such a jaundiced eye. This story is exactly why. 
you know, because Daniel Snyder gets away with everything. And uh, after doing things that come very close, in my opinion, to having his franchise taken away from him. And John Gruden, again, not saying that he doesn't deserve his fate, but John Gruden has just had his life and his career ruined because of emails he thought were private. And it just, there's something about it that just really bothers me. As you that I, <laughs> that, that there's no doubt I agree with that because at the end of the day, the unfairness is that the, the fundamental tension there and the fundamental unfairness to me is that that same transparency has not existed for what I think we can all agree was an investigation into some of the most serious allegations of rampant workplace misconduct and misconduct sometimes that often I feel like that word undersells what we know when what happened uh, within that team. But that same level of transparency of forthrightness did not exist for what happened. And these weren't just words, these were actions. These were things that happened to dozens of women, dozens of employees of a team that happened over the course of years. These weren't one-off instances. These weren't remarks, these were comments. And I think that's why at the time of the Washington football team investigation, people called for transparency documents, a written report that detailed the findings. And I think that's why now you're seeing renewed calls for it. Andrew Beaton, listen, thank you so much for staying up late on a Tuesday. Uh, I have a feeling this probably isn't the only night you're working on this story. I think you probably had a few of these, but I appreciate you taking the time and, and digging deep and explaining uh, everything about it. Thanks. It, my pleasure, Peter. My thanks to Paul Burmeister, as usual, and to Andrew Beaton of the Wall Street Journal for joining me this week. Next week, we might actually talk a lot about football on this podcast. Hope you enjoyed this one. I hope you got something out of it. And next week, it looks like we may be back to a full football discussion on the Peter King Podcast. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag and Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.